0: hello welcome to the wise women in waste podcast series with me claudia Amos, technical director for circularity resource efficiency and waste and my colleague debbie Hitchen, director for sustainable production and consumption at anthesis if you joined us for our previous episodes you will know that we are co-hosting a short series of podcasts that uses informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sector through the lens of women like us We are inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way today we are super excited to be joined by emma hamsey consultant in our sustainable production and consumption team so welcome emma it's really great to have you with us today could you please start with telling us a bit more about yourself and how you got into your role today
1: Hi yeah thank you so much for having me it's been really good to have the invite from you guys I feel (laughs) honoured. So I guess I'll just start from the beginning I started by studying marine biology so a little bit different to the job that I work in today so that was a lot of sort of diving and through that is where I started to see a lot of waste in the the marine environment and um, not just there but also you know in our coastal regions as well which really got me to start thinking about You know, sustainability as a whole, and then I started digging a little bit more. And through that is where I started to see a lot of waste in the marine environment and, you know, in our coastal regions as well, which really got me to start thinking about sustainability as a whole. And then I started digging a little bit more. So it was actually through one of my networks at university that I got introduced to Anthesis, and um, they were already doing an internship. And through that, I was able to get an internship. And did that for a couple of months and that was on a glamorous project collecting gate fees as you can imagine was <laughs> quite a thrilling task. After that I actually ended up working in a pub for a while for quite a few months and I always remember this day because I was sort of sat in the park on a sort of 12-hour shift and just happened to check my emails which I never usually did and had a, an email from Anthesis asking to come back for an interview for a full-time role which was obviously great I was beaming when I was going back to work in the pub uh, and I actually found a fiver on my way there so it was an extra good day <laughs> so yeah that's kind of how I got into the role that I'm in now <laughs>
2: I think it's so interesting that you say that, Emma, because we often hear this, it's who you know, not what you know. And actually, you're a great example of how your network actually helped you to get into that. And I remember when we first met you three years ago, it was just really at the time when the Blue Planet Effect was raising people's consciousness around the plastics in the ocean, plastics in the marine environment. And I remember thinking, this is the perfect timing to branch out a little. It was an area the team hadn't worked in before. And having marine biologists like you and Nick, I think, coming to us was really timely. And I know since then, you've gone on to work on a huge diversity of different projects. What is it now that you're working on that you think is perhaps some of the most exciting work that you've done?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely when I first started, it was across various different projects from foodways, looking at potato skins, I remember one project. Now I definitely work a lot more in circular economy, specifically in packaging most of the time. So that'd be a lot of landscape reviews that I would do sort of policy regs, waste infrastructure, a lot of stuff around recyclability, collections of recyclates, all these different sort of avenues that all come back to a circular economy. And that's across loads of different clients, but mainly sort of big brands, retailers is sort of the area that I'm working the most.
2: Mentioning landscape reviews, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that actually means. What are you looking at when you're researching the landscapes for packaging?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So generally speaking, if we're looking at, for example, doing a sustainable packaging strategy, there's a, a big chunk of that where you need to understand what's going on within a market that your clients operating in. And so that can be from looking at waste infrastructure. So is it a formal or an informal sector? Do they have recycling collection at curbside? Is there collections sort of from, you know, municipalities? Is it third party private waste management? that kind of thing. And then sort of as well as that, there's the policy side of things. So is there extended producer responsibility at present? Is it coming in in the future? Is there deposit return scheme? Is there different policy around plastic taxes, banning of single use items and that kind of thing? And that can really help inform a client on what they need to do in order to sort of relate that to their packaging types you know, moving towards actually being compliant with regulation and actually compliant with whatever waste infrastructure is available in a market.
2: So it would it be fair to say that for some of our customers that the regulation is actually driving them to a new form of behavior and that's why they want to understand the regulations in different markets.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think a lot of the time we're working with sustainability teams and they want to do this anyway so that's great but I think this policy is what's driving more senior people now to understanding that actually sustainability and looking at their packaging is really important because especially you know if you look at the UK as an example new EPRs coming in and previously you know you were looking at kind of millions to be able to fund the, the system whereas now we're looking at into the billions. And so that's really got the ears pricked up. And so I think that's another reason why we're seeing such an increase in this kind of work coming in.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, once you get on the radar of the financial directors with that sort of increase of scale of spend, of course, it's going to have a completely different resonance within the organisation. So I think suddenly it goes from being, as you say, a CSR agenda and maybe a tick box exercise to becoming something that really has to be on the shareholder agenda and on the board and C-suite agendas as a result just say those numbers again, because that is really quite a daunting thought. And for people who don't know the UK producer responsibility system, you tell us a little bit more about how you've been sort of involved in supporting around the consultations.
1: Yeah, so to start, there's the current PRN system. And I think the figures are standing around the 375 million area. With the new consultation reforms that came in recently, and that have been dragged out a little bit due to various reasons was projected at 1.5 billion and new assessments recently after the consultation went out has gone up to around 2.7 billion
2: so this is the cost of compliance for businesses who are impacted by producer responsibility
1: yeah absolutely so that's for businesses that are not doing the desirable behaviour so they've got packaging that isn't recyclable. They haven't got take back schemes when they're mandatory and that kind of thing. So I think it's waking businesses up. It's much more beneficial to be on the side of sustainability than not.
2: Yeah, I think it's a significant consideration and factor in all of this. And if I understand correctly, you were also telling me before this conversation that there is no change in the share of that responsibility. So that cost is going to be potentially landing on fewer stakeholders in the future whereas now it's currently in the UK split across a larger number of the supply chain partners is that right?
1: Yeah so I believe that if this does happen that it would sit with the producers rather than you know their suppliers for for one example and that's the same across different policy that's coming in as well so carbon tax is another example of that.
2: Yeah, so suddenly the financial imperative for different players, different actors within our producers to really understand what the sustainability impacts are have become so much more important. It's a really interesting conversation. And for those people who are outside of UK, the question is, well, what does this mean in other parts of the world? But your landscape reviews are throwing up significant increases in EPR systems globally, aren't they?
1: Yeah, so... In the past, it's definitely been quite Eurocentric and like we said about the UK, there's other European markets that are also reforming their policy, but we can see it's cropping up now. It's not in the US yet, but there's definitely states that are driving for it, in Canada, elsewhere as well, even in remote areas with less infrastructure that you might deem as underdeveloped are really driving and getting behind EPR now.
2: And I guess those jurisdictions have the opportunity to be fast followers because producer responsibility has been in UK and Canada and other parts of Europe for several decades now, sort of coming in here in the UK in the 90s. So I guess there's a nice blueprint that if they want to look at that and use it as an opportunity to fast forward regulation locally, provides them with some frameworks to do so. You mentioned Europe a couple of times, and I think there's some quite interesting stuff going on in France, isn't there, where they're looking at taking their producer responsibility into a wider remit of opportunities. So I believe that they're looking at refill systems in France, aren't they?
1: Yes, I think they're definitely looking at moving away from any single use that they possibly can that doesn't have an alternative and refill is definitely one of those things that they're looking to bring in. I think France is definitely the most progressive country in Europe at the moment. They've just released their new circular economy plan and it's just so much more wider reaching and stringent than their previous policy that they had in place.
2: It's interesting to see that even within Europe under the framework of the Green Deal and so on, that there are some nations and some states which are really championing this, really pushing the bar on it and how that's having impacts on a wider scale. I think Claudia and I have talked before in a previous podcast about how when you're a global manufacturer or producer or, or you know, you're your retailer with a footprint in different geographical locations, then it's not as straightforward as just saying, well, we changed something to comply in this market because quite a lot of the product procurement development, manufacturing, packing, and so on, is actually done in one source for multiple markets. And so it's really interesting to see how some of this more advanced development of policy can drive change in other countries just by creating that sort of need for a common denominator one other thing that I've always thought is interesting about the work that you do is that you look at claims and logos, don't you? And thinking again about Europe and the framework that the directive provides there. It's given you an opportunity to kind of do quite a lot of work around understanding what organisations or companies can put on front of pack, back of pack, what the standard logos are. And again, is that something that we see as a sort of growing trend for people to try to understand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to your point around if a product or packaging is manufactured in one market and it goes out to a load of other markets, there's this consideration too. So can you make a recyclability claim, for example, on a pack in France? Well, you might be able to, but if you're manufacturing a packaging that is going to Lithuania, for another example, too and it can't be recycled there, then you can't have that same claim on that pack. And so you really got to tie it back as well to the collections within a market, what infrastructure is available. And so this is really throwing up some issues for global clients because they've got to think about all these different considerations. And so, yeah, I think that's something else that we're seeing people need more and more help with because it's a really big landscape and every single country has a nuance, at least one. And so it's a very diverse sort of landscape out there at the moment with a lot of considerations
2: we could talk about this conversation for a long time. And obviously, I mean, the amount of work that you've been doing over the last few years, we can't get it all into a short podcast. But there are other things that I want to spend some time talking to you about as well, because you're a big advocate of diversity, equity and inclusion within our business. And I think it'd be great to understand a little bit more about the work that you do on DE&I, and particularly why that's important to people who are starting their careers and you know just coming into this sector, how important that is to help them to decide whether the employer they're looking at is a place that they see themselves being able to develop their future career. So perhaps we change tack again and have a conversation about that now. That would be great.
1: I have a passion for young careers. So I was then inspired to join the DEI group to set our UK DEI strategy out. And as part of that, we're looking at what opportunities can we give to young people. So I think outreach and education is a really important part of that. We want to reach people from a diverse background who might not always be exposed to the sustainability world and all the opportunities that lie within that and so you know that can be at GCSE level, A level and also at university but we also you know we don't want to be excluding people that sort of maybe haven't got degrees and are not able to go to university for whatever reason whether that's financial or otherwise you know we've talked about internships earlier on we're really committed to offering more internships and actually more recently have introduced an apprenticeship program which I think is Absolutely fantastic for those much younger people who don't necessarily have all the other tools that most people have access to. So, we're looking forward to sort of expanding that over the next few years.
2: It's really interesting also for me to reflect on not only how you got the job through your network, but how you were also able to come in and do that internship. Do you think that that was instrumental in helping you to make your career decision?
1: Absolutely. I think even though I was working on that one project, Working in the office where you could hear all the different conversations, you understood all the different projects that were going on, you got to sit in in the Monday morning meetings, we'd always talk about the different sectors that we're working in and all the different services that we offer and it was just through that that I was sort of sat there thinking, I really hope I get a job at the end of this because this absolutely sounds like a place for me. Without that internship, I don't know exactly where I would have landed up.
2: How important was it to you that that internship was paid?
1: Oh, hugely. I mean, without it, I wouldn't have been able to do the internship. So it's important that companies do that kind of thing, because otherwise you leave a huge portion of people who actually can't afford to do free work. So I think without that, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think from our perspective, it's kind of like fair pay for fair work because it might not have been the most glamorous job, but it was a really, really important job and we couldn't have delivered the gateview project without it. And actually for every new year we do this, we actually have an intern again going to a very similar process. And with other projects, I think that encouraged us to use more interns for short term projects to do a wider variety of projects and maybe data collection in particular, but also to try out people and see if there's a fit, if they're interested. And I think it's really beneficial for both sides on a proper contract and not just shadowing people, but actually working or contributing.
2: And Emma, you've become a big advocate now, haven't you, as part of our STEP and DE&I group?
1: Yeah when we first started at Anthesis there was this group it's called Step and that was a young career professionals group and when I first started and joined that group it was about six people and it's grown since then into something like 45 people today that's just over three years which is massive and I think the group has also grown so it's four young career professionals and it's there to really empower people within the business to make themselves feel they have a part in the business. They can drive their careers the way that they want to. There's that freedom to do so. but It's also really good for networking across the business. And there's just so many opportunities that come with that group. And so I'm really excited to see how it evolves going forward as well.
0: That sounds really cool. And I didn't realise that you were now nearly 50. So very good. I just remember you did kind of like a lot of organisation around one of the big Anthesis events. And I think what's also really rewarding is that you actually got direct access to management, isn't it? You're working with Stuart and others on really high profile activities within Anthesis. And that just gives you a completely level. Sometimes I'm really envious how much access you have than others, (laughs) because it's kind of like really formalised through that path so that's that's super nice.
1: Yeah absolutely we've got that but we've also started to think about how else we can improve our skills more widely and we've started to do a lot of peer-to-peer learning now that we've got people coming straight in at the junior end or internships we've also got people that are a bit further on in their careers and we're, we're using that opportunity to pass that on down if you will
0: which I think is also a really great opportunity. Absolutely and I think that is also the mentality when I started my job you do a lot of the hard grunt and a lot of the hard work, and then you get the more rewarding, more interesting task. I think that has changed in terms of attitude, that we are being pushed to share work, get people involved really from the start. And that is, I think, really important, and that's really good. But sometimes it's also where you feel it's quite nice if people show that they can diligently do maybe the more boring work because that's always a more difficult bit. And I think proofs themselves is probably the wrong word, but just show they're dedicated to their work. I think that's probably really important to me, that I know that people are really diligent and put as much effort in the boring bit or less interesting bits as well as in all the exciting bits. And I think that's just lovely and I think that has changed. Um, But I agree with you that in terms of having paid work is really important and I couldn't be where I am today without having the opportunity to get paid while you still survive on very little money. At least you got the money to survive and to work and get yourself started.
2: I think also what's interesting about this conversation is to think about how easy it is to develop yourself personally and professionally, given some of those technologies that Emma was talking about as training tools. So when I first started out in my career, I was sort of dependent on my employer agreeing to pay for me to go to conferences or agreeing that a conference was a good use of my time if it was a free thing to attend. And there are only so many of those that you can do in any given month or any given quarter. So I was rather restricted. I mean, I could read journals and certainly there was a lot of stuff that I, you know, had access to, but much less stuff that was digitally available. And I was talking to a member of our team just recently who said, Well, of course I can progress much more quickly in terms of my professional development than you would have done, Debbie, because I listen to a podcast on the way to work and another podcast on the way home. So I'm absorbing information from some of the leading experts in the waste and sustainability sectors in a way that wasn't accessible to you when you were sort of going through this early stage of your career. And I think that's really true. I think it's really interesting, firstly, that, you know, that resource is there. But secondly, that actually the younger career professionals are looking for that opportunity to enhance their learning almost in their own time. But I wonder sometimes whether the gap is around the sort of emotional intelligence, the stuff that you can only learn on the job or part of a team. And I think that that's an area which just recently over the last couple of years wherever you are in your career development path has been impacted by the pandemic and it's much more difficult for us as individuals now i think to learn the social connectivity to look at body language or to read the emotional intelligence and maybe it's even harder to be authentic because we're all sitting in remote environments with just a two-dimensional screen so gemma i'm interested to hear whether you have views on the pros and cons i guess of the digital learning and the development opportunities that digital To you as you start your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, you mentioned there about listening to podcasts, yeah, everything is at the fingertips of people now. If you want to look something up, you can look that up. And of course, that's going to help people to progress in their careers much more quickly. I think there's a difference, though, between exactly your point. So there's two dimensional, and then there's actually in practice and what goes on in the real world. You know, you can read as much as you like online. But if you don't develop those other skills, where you're dealing with clients, you might be talking to colleagues, networking at a conference, you can't get that from reading about it. You have to actually go and be in that physical being to get those kinds of skills. So I think even though technology is a, is a wonderful thing, and it's fantastic, I do think about the younger generation and how they will actually have personal skills and be able to kind of interact with people. I think about my brother, who is was much younger than me. And You might be lucky to get a grunt out of him sometimes, you know, he's just on his phone all the time. I do think about that and what will the landscape look like? I'm saying when I'm older, (laughs) but you know, in years to come.
2: I guess the point here is looking at, you know, there's the technical skill where definitely being able to tap into podcasts, webinars, online networks, information that you can read on social media, that's definitely going to enhance your ability to learn on a technical front quite quickly and to take in a range of different views. So you can test and challenge what you're hearing from one expert by listening to a counter view online from somebody else. But I think what we're all potentially flagging is that to be a good leader in this space, to be more wise in a sort of rounded term, you actually need some of that real in business, in situ environment and that learning opportunity that comes with that. So I don't know about uh, you guys, but I'm super excited about the opportunity to get back into the offices after the lockdown ends later this summer, because I think that's one of the things that I've really missed is that social interaction with colleagues and that ability to have a conversation that's perhaps founded on something more than just a two dimensional human being on a
0: screen. I think that's really true. I'm quite happy to work from home and not come into the office. But I have to admit that every time I come into one of the ANTHESA's offices, there's always added benefit in terms of colleagues you don't often see because they're desking, or you overhear conversation or you're being asked a question by somebody just because you're around, because it's still a bit different to knock on somebody's door by a teams or just to have a chat. And I think that's always beneficial. So yeah, definitely much more enjoyable and much more natural exchange and conversation about work stuff and private stuff and just what's going on.
2: Having said that, I think they say necessity is the mother of all invention. And the thing that's really impressed me over the last year or so is how people, more those in the younger generations, perhaps in the millennial and Gen Z generation, have been able to take the cause of sustainability online and make that work just as effectively. I was watching Greta's A Year to Change the Planet recently, and I was just so amazed to see how she's managed to get her Fridays for Future campaign to actually move from being A march, a sort of physical manifestation of people's concern about the environmental impacts to being something that's just as impactful, but is working on an online platform and seems to actually perhaps be gaining momentum to be getting more members from people who can now join remotely from all sorts of different locations, different time zones in a way that maybe you wouldn't be able to in a physical march. So there are benefits, I think, that looking to the next generation, we can learn quite a lot from. And to bring it back to step, Emma, I think that's where it's super exciting because you guys have actually got a membership council, which is advising senior management within Anthesis about what it feels like to work in the organisation, to be a young professional and sort of developing your career and what you're looking for from an employer.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's a new thing that's come around in the last couple of months. And when we first approached about it, I thought that was just a fantastic idea. And I think it's so valuable to understand what young career professionals are thinking within the business. And I think that's one of the keys to success. You have to make sure that you're catering for everyone. And in a business where there wasn't necessarily that many young people in the past, to then all of a sudden have an explosion of young people, it's really great that Those people have that voice and are able to sort of say, you know, this is this is what we think about this and this is what we might think about that. And that's actually taken on by senior leadership and considered when thinking about future plans. Thanks, Emma.
0: That's really interesting. My next question is really to get a bit of a view of what people are looking for in employers, And I know we have recently done a survey looking at the UK workforce. The findings from that survey were that uh, over half of the UK's workforce says sustainability is a really important factor in choosing a company to work for, which definitely has changed from my days. And I think 40% of workers stated that they're disappointed by the lack of effort and resources put into sustainability by their employer. And as well, the importance of sustainable credentials ranks high for Gen Z, so the 16 to 24-year-olds, and over a third say that somewhat, or it's very important to them, with millennials, so the 25 to 34-year-olds, not far behind with over 60%. And I think that's probably more your category and your view you are representing here in this conversation. And I think this is kind of like a social awakening within the careers and what people are expecting in an employer
1: yeah definitely and I think you just mentioned there sort of social awakening I think that's absolutely the right term to coin I think as well you've got to look at it from a certain perspective on who has the luxury to be able to think about what they want from their employer too fine we're talking about gen z and millennials but you know there's still a huge proportion of people that don't actually have the luxury to be able to think okay what is it that I actually want from this job you know are they doing stuff around DEI? Are they again sustainability that we talked about? What transparency has that business got with a host of different things? Gender pay gap, for example. And I really think that that is definitely something that people are looking at when they when they look for a new job now. And then they look for an employer. If they're using platforms like Glassdoor. If there's any bad comments on there, I've had friends that have definitely not applied for jobs because they've seen stuff you know, that's not being addressed within that business. So, yeah, I think the landscape has changed quite a lot. But, yeah, definitely to keep that in mind that there are still people that have to think about, right, Okay, these would be nice, but I actually also need money too. So I think it's also, yes, fine, it's that generation, but I think it's split into classes. So it's always something to think about as well.
0: I think that is a super summary of this conversation today. We have come to an end again. We could still chat for another hour, so we might be able to do that. But I think for today, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. we love to hear your thoughts, feedback and ideas for future topics. So please do continue to get in touch via email or LinkedIn.